Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who helped shape and found the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson. Today, we'll revisit a conversation that I had in 2008 with longtime member and contributor to the marine mammal community, Karen Pryor, an American animal trainer and prolific author on the subject. As a marine mammal trainer in the 1960s, she pioneered the use of behavioral science to develop the dolphin shows at Sea Life Park. Her work with dolphins as head trainer and curator at Sea Life Park led to the first scientific paper on training creativity in animals. While at Sea Life Park, she did groundbreaking work on animal behavior and cognition, which eventually segued into what is now called clicker training, which is used by some trainers as a positive and humane way to work with animals. Karen's career has spanned decades. Though retired, her influence is still felt in the marine mammal field through the dozens of publications and books that she produced and the animal training methods that she pioneered. I cannot do justice to her story and her numerous contributions to the field of animal training in this short podcast. So let's listen to what she told me in her own words. My interest was always in animals. I always wanted to be a naturalist. I was a butterfly collector as a child. And um, when I went to college, there was really, in those days, no way for me to be a biologist. Uh, in order to major in biology, I would have had to take uh, um, a pre-med course. And that would have meant a lot of courses involving laboratories and indoors and glassware that would be useless to me and very difficult courses, comparative anatomy and all that. Um, so I majored in English at Cornell, but at Cornell had a big ag school. And at the ag school, I could take ornithology and I could take a little dip into botany and I could take paleontology, take all the ologies that got me out in the field. My first husband, Tap Pryor, uh, was in the Marines when we married and the Korean War was going on. We were sent out to Hawaii just as the war ended and he served his tour of duty in Hawaii. And then because we loved diving and had done a lot of diving, he went to graduate school on the GI Bill um, to study marine biology. I went along too a um, couple of afternoons a week because I loved marine biology but it was not dolphins at all, had no interest in them. In fact, I had met some dolphins and found them very dull uh, in the Bahamas where the, my father was involved in the marine lab, uh, at uh, the Lerner Marine Lab in Bimini. They had a couple of dolphins. I was much more interested in the coral reef fish. I remained interested in ichthyology and marine invertebrate zoology. And while I could not afford to go for a master's, I could take all the courses I wanted Ignore the courses I didn't want. A very good way, in my opinion, to get your education done. Um, so I was, my specialty was uh, uh, nudibranchs. When Tap started Sea Life Park, he entrepreneured. Um, in getting his master's degree, he wanted to study sharks. And the only way to study sharks 
at the time, the only place to keep them in captivity was in Anuitak, where the Navy had some big testing tanks, which University of Hawaii scientists were using to keep sharks in during the summers. This meant he had to go to uh, be gone all summer. And we had babies, little children, and we lived on the ocean a long way from anybody else. And, and it was hard. It was hard for me and lonely, too, for both of us. And so he started looking at the idea of, of maybe finishing his research at an oceanarium. And we visited marine land and marine studios and uh, seaquarium in Hawaii, uh, in uh, Miami, looking for a place where he could keep a research, do research with sharks. Well, you can't really do that in an oceanarium. You can't do research with captive animals that are on public display. There's no way to choose what happens with the animals. They have to be on display all the time. So he came home and decided he would build his own facility. He would build an oceanarium. He would uh, share it, build a research institute next to it, and then he could do his research. Um, it worked out. It took about five years to develop these two projects side by side, but he entrepreneured it. And um, throughout that time, I was not involved at all, except as a spectator and encourager, uh, giving dinner parties for potential stockholders, that kind of thing. And my interest remained in the coral reef exhibit. I paid no attention to the marine mammals that we were collecting. Um, at the time, they were off limits anyway to everybody except the trainers who had been hired. Now, Ken Norris was very involved from the beginning, Sea Life Park. He was our advisor. Uh, Paul, Paul Brees was one of our founding partners. He was the director of the local zoo in Honolulu. And Paul had suggested, he knew Ken, and he suggested that we bring Ken in. And uh, Ken had was at that time curator of Marine, uh, Marine Land of the Pacific. So he was full of wonderful ideas. And one of them was that we would have dolphin shows, but they would not be circus-type shows like all the other oceanariums. <clears throat> they would be uh, scientific shows. And he also had the idea that we would not that we would not need dolphin trainers from the mainland because uh, he had a graduate student who had been uh, was not really a student of Skinner's but a student of a associate of Skinner's at Columbus Columbia, um, and Ron Turner was training Ken's research dolphins at Marine Land of the Pacific, and Ron knew a new way to train dolphins, which was. Um, called operant conditioning. It was come, It came from Skinner's labs at Harvard. And if you understood operant conditioning, anybody could train a dolphin. So Ron, he had, Ken had Ron Turner write us a little 20-page typescript about operant conditioning. Maybe it was more pages, but it was pretty little. And uh, they hired three intelligent people, and those people were supposed to train the dolphins. And uh, about three months before Sea Life Park opened, it became apparent that, as Tap put it, Tap Pryor put it, the dolphins had trained the trainers to give them fish for nothing. So Tap called Ken and said, well, I'm sorry we need a real dolphin trainer because we're not getting anywhere here. And there really weren't any. Most of the dolphin trainers at the time were sea lion trainers. 
and uh, holding out fish was their main way of getting the dolphins to do something. Hold the fish here, hold the fish here, hold the fish here. And, uh, and the shows were very rudimentary. So, but he said, we need one now and we need one cheap. And Ken Norris said, well, you're married to one. Why don't you ask Karen? I had done some animal training. I had trained one dog and one horse, one, my dog because it was out of control, knocking kids down on the beach to get their ice cream cones, and the horse because we bought a pony for the children and the pony had a baby and nobody was there to train the baby except me. So basically I just figured it out. I had done a lot of riding, so I had a horse background. One horse, one pony. And I had three little children, three under five. I did not want to be, well, by then they were, a couple of them were in kindergarten or something, but I didn't want to do this. But I sat down with that manual. I read it, Ken Norris's uh, training assistant, Ron Turner. I read that and I was hooked. Uh, it was fascinating information. It was really important. I could understand so much about what had happened with my dog and my pony, where I had missed the boat. Um, both of them were competition animals. I mean, we went quite a long way. Both of them were in shows and, you know, I trained them to do a lot. But, but now I really understood what I had been doing. And I just couldn't wait to try it. Um, I, there were many reasons not to do this. My little children, um, our essential poverty, um, I mean, if I was going to go to work, I might go to work or something I actually got paid for more. But uh, I think I started at 400 a month as head trainer. Anyway, I went and I, I had to try it. I figured I'd do it for three months, get the park open. That'd be it. Um, when I went in the training facility the first day, I expected to see Flipper. Uh, Terciops truncatus, good old Atlantic bottlenose dolphin. Yeah, 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 that one. Uh, because I had never looked at what was in there. And indeed, we did not have flipper. We had three pelagic mid-ocean species completely different. We had three different kinds of dolphins. None of them were flipper. Nobody knew anything about any of these animals. None of them had been kept in captivity. Uh, we really had a blank slate. you know. So it was perfect for... Uh, experimenting with a new training way. Nobody knew what to do. There's nobody to tell me you can't do that or you have to do this. I could just play. And so I did. Uh, we got open in uh, in three months. We opened with two shows. Uh, one of them had three animals and the other one had uh, oh, 10 or 12 animals. Uh, wonderful. Those shows are still running. They haven't changed a whole lot beyond what we opened with. It was it was a real uh, slam-bang tour de force. Uh, one of the other things that nobody seemed to realize in the park side of things, and this really included Ken, was that you needed shows. You had to design them. Somebody had to design, write a script. Somebody had to plan, you know, an opening, a closing, a peak moment, a narration, a reason for the animals to be doing all these behaviors. Unfortunately, um, I had a theater background. That I had put a lot of time into at college as well. And so writing the shows was uh, afternoon's work. Uh, then we had, uh, the, and, and then the training. It was really the training, not the dolphins, quite so much, uh, that got me into to stay. But I had 
that biology background and the behavior of the animals turned out to be also very fascinating to me. They were all, and starting with three species, oh, how nice. They were completely different. Pretty soon we had four and then five species. Uh, it turned out that we were living in dolphin soup out there. We had so many different kinds of cetaceans and nobody knew that. Uh, when we started Sea Life Park and uh, when we started Sea Life Park and TAP first announced it to the newspapers, a zoology professor at the University of Hawaii said uh, that it would be a failure because we would have to have dolphins uh, to entertain the public. And uh, Hawaiian waters contained a very impoverished cetacean fauna. Well, he was wrong. He hadn't been out there looking for them. And uh, so we had, uh, by the time I left, we'd had 13 species in captivity in those tanks, none of which had ever been in captivity before. We pioneered a lot of training in general. So did the other people who were working with, with uh, operant conditioning. We weren't the only ones. That kind of surfaced in two other places too. Um, another graduate student of B.F. Skinner's, uh, Keller Breland, <clears throat> um, got a consulting job with the Navy and also he had he had started a business of training animals for television and for practical uses. And some of his trainers worked for um, SeaWorld. So SeaWorld also, when it opened, was the second place to open with operant conditioning as the method of training their animals. Um, and they did, they took it a long way too on their own. They did a lot of innovative training too. Um, we had the, all had the chance to innovate because we were the first ones using operant training consciously. It's been, in, you know, people have been training animals for millennia and using the principles without really knowing it. Um, but a lot of the of standard training techniques, such as using a target to lead the animal around, were, were evolved during that t first 10-year period when the Navy, SeaWorld, and we were all innovating. The first open ocean work, we, we were, it, it began because of Ken Norris. He wanted to see, the Navy was interested in the fact that these animals seemed to swim too fast faster than they ought to be able to. And that was deduced for watching them bow ride on ships, which of course is, they're getting a free ride there. They're getting a push. But if you see them in the ocean, you think they're overtaking the, the ship, but really they're usually coming from ahead of the ship and catching the ride that way. Um, however, they certainly are fantastically well-designed. Uh, they shed turbulence beautifully, much better than our ships did at the time. So there was an interest in how fast they could swim. And Ken wanted to do an experiment. I think he had Navy funding to do that experiment. It involved doing it in the ocean. You needed that much room. We took, a, we gave him a young, an immature um, Pacific bottlenose named Keiki, which is Hawaiian for child. We set up a training facility in a lagoon, in a, in a enclosed, man-made enclosed piece of water <clears throat> on uh, Coconut Island in Kaniwe Bay. And uh, the first release, we took him out of there. I was the trainer, I guess. Um, we took him out of there, Ken and me, and my oldest son and his oldest daughter, who were both about 11 at the time, maybe 10 or 11. And he came out of there panicked and took off like a madman, the animal. And But we had, Ken had invented, really, 
uh, using an underwater sound as a beacon to call him back. And he had his underwater sound thing dangling over the side and uh, turned it on. And by gosh, the animal came back. Came back shivering with his eyes rolling. Put me in the boat. This is terrible. I'm all alone out here. But uh, then we let him back in and he was fine. And then he soon became confident. And that was the open ocean animal that we worked with offshore. So he was our first. The Navy was also training an animal to go out. And um, I forget that animal's name. They were training for deep diving, I think. Another thing you couldn't do in captivity. And they said they were the first, but their animal was on a tether. And our animal was completely free to leave. So we always thought that the crown belonged to us. Um, we then started doing for Norris uh, some deep diving. And again, we Norris made a sound beacon that you could drop in the water and the animal could go down and touch it. Um, the first one that they built, the Navy built for him, brought up to Sea Life Park and dropped it into the... Uh, it dropped it into the Ocean Science Theater where we had a little bit of depth. The animals went panicked. Well, it turned out it made a very loud sound, but too sound high for us to hear. <laughs> Come on, folks. So we had to rebuild it to make a sound that we could hear and that wouldn't panic the dolphin, where you could control the sound a little bit, uh, or at least that the initial sound wasn't, you know, ear splitting, literally. Um, so we took that offshore. We did some open ocean work with that too. I think these things went along in parallel that Ken's research grants would all have all those dates. So for me, it was just a lot of fun training the animals. As soon as we could, we started training everything, the birds in the air, mm -hmm. the fish in the reef tank. This kind of training shows you the animal as it really is, not the animal as a subordinate junior member of the household, but the animal or as something to be afraid of or whatever, because you're not working on that level. It's not based on your relationship. It's not based on dominance. If the animal is a polar bear, then put a fence between you so you don't have to worry, and it doesn't have to worry that you're going to hurt it either. Um, but... This allows the animals to really interact the way they would not in a social situation. It taps into how they learn to get along in the world, really. How they learn to find their food, how they learn to solve problems, how they learn to play, how they learn to explore, how they do all those things in the real life. That's what we're kind of tapping into. We're tapping into exploratory behavior. Um, and, and you quickly get a dialogue going. So it is just a wonderful way to find out what, what's going on. Who are you? What can you do? What, you know, what do you have to say to me? Uh, and, and they're all fascinating. They're all wonderful. Very interesting. It's very interesting to work with animals that don't have a reputation for being smart. Guess what? They're not so dumb either. Oh. So, and, and by extension also, in the, this is in my new book too, uh, the techniques have, now we have an, another branch of my little company that deals with children with autism, um, with training under multilingual difficult circumstances, with any kind of training of physical skills, non-verbally, uh, using the clicker instead of the dolphin trainer's whistle to, and, and so that you take the dominant subordinate learner, dominant teacher out of it altogether and you just 
we exchange the information clearly. And so that's wonderful. For, it's wonderful with people. If you would like to watch Karen's complete interview or other Scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top. <laughs>